Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month, comedian and writer Jessica Eason tells us about her New York City no-underwear extravaganza disaster. I mean, I, I, I just said it, but I feel like sex in the city. I yes. think it steered me wrong. I think wow. it made me think that I could have sex all the time, and we all lived in the same Manhattan but they didn't live in the improv comedy world. There's no episodes of them with a bunch of nerdy white dudes. <laughs> no. I would love to see that episode where Samantha, I mean, that's a missed opportunity on their part where Samantha starts yes. taking an improv class and oh, suddenly yes. no one wants to have like have sex with her. <laughs> <laughs> or they all do. And she's like in a sea of comedy nerds. <laughs> yeah. And she suddenly loses her libido. She's like, I don't want to have sex. I don't know. It's really weird. <laughs> oh my God. They break her. Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now on to our episode. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Sal Mercogliano. 
Sal is an associate professor of history at Campbell University and teaches courses in world maritime history and maritime security. He also hosts What's Going On With Shipping on YouTube. Let's hear what he has to say about the sinking of the Titanic. Sal, thank you so much for joining us today and having and coming back on the show. Rebecca, thank you so much for having me back. I'm very excited. <laughs> Let's start off. We're talking about the Titanic. I'm very excited. Can you walk us through the design and the, the building of the Titanic? Who's the company that's building the ship? What did they envision? Sure. So this is the White Star Line. And this is a period of time when Germany and Great Britain were in almost a luxury liner arms race against each other. Everybody was trying to outbuild each other. You had something called the creation of the Blue Ribbon, which was this who can get their ship fastest across the Atlantic. And a variety of companies were all competing with each other. The Germans had introduced to the world the four stack liner. These were cruise liners or actually passenger liners that were earmarked to deliver passengers across the Atlantic. Remember, this is pre-aviation, so it's the only way you get across is by boat. And these vessels had these massive four stacks because they're using coal-fired boilers. You need to pull air into the vessel to keep the not just the passengers cool, but to feed the boilers. And so when Germany introduced these, these were state-of-the-art. And so everybody chased after them. And the Cunard Line, which was another British company, introduced their version of the four stackers. These are ships like Lusitania and Mauritania. And they were extremely fast. They introduced a new type of propulsion system called turbines. And so they set broke all the records and they were it. And this is where you get a guy like Bruce Ismay and the White Star Line that comes in and they had to make a choice. Are, are we going to try to compete in the speed race against Kennard, which would be really hard to do because Kennard was getting a lot of money from the British government because they were delivering the mail? Or should we focus on a niche? And their niche was going to be luxury. We're going to build the most luxurious vessels of this type. And so they wanted to build their own four stackers. And they did what the irony of the four stackers of the Titanic was and its sister ships, Olympic and Britannic, was it didn't need four stacks, just need three. The last stack on the vessel was actually a fake stack. It was it was it was there for stack envy. Uh, they did not want to sit there and not be one stack short. And so they built these vessels with the intended purpose of they were going to court this this luxury market. And the reason you had three, and this, all the ships were basically built in trios, is so that one could be crossing one way, one could be crossing the other way, and the other one is kind of in between. So you had this kind of routine service, and when you needed to do maintenance, they can pull off. And so Olympic and its sister ship Titanic, followed by Britannic, were intended for this service. But the real crux of the money where they generated their revenue wasn't in the luxury spaces. It was in the steerage. It was in the third class spaces where they could pack thousands of people in board and ship them across. And that's where they made their money was getting those immigrants across to the United States. So how uh, how big of a, a marketing um campaign was set up for the Titanic and, and and who were some of the notable passengers who signed up for the first voyage? Well, I, I mean, all these companies were advertising like crazy. I mean, so they were in all the newspapers and journals. And again, what you would want to do is really court that huge migrant, uh, those immigrants coming across. And so they set this up and they did a lot of things 
that they had to do to prevent this. So for example, if you arrived in New York with a load of immigrants coming across, you had to make sure, for example, they cleared medical, that they didn't have any communicable diseases. They had to go through the Ellis Island area. And if you brought a, lo a, a, a load across that had some sort of disease that was going to get sent back, that was on the company's dollar. And so mm. the companies did a real good job in screening people. Lots of them had little areas set up where the people would arrive. They would be there for about a week or so. And so they could make sure there was no disease, no nothing. And so they really did this a lot. The Germans were really good at this. They actually set up little villages where, where before you would get on board the German vessels, you'd go across. And, you know, a, a first cruise, which is what happened with Titanic, is always going to garner the most people. They're going to garner a lot of attention. And you saw that with this voyage, the Astors coming on board, and, and, and it was a who's who of people coming on board. And one of the things that they really wanted to do is, is be there for that first voyage. And I will say that usually first voyages of ships are always plagued with problems. It's it's You're working the bugs out. You haven't quite got the system figured out yet because it's a first voyage, but Titanic was different because it was second in class. So they took a lot of people from the Olympic, the first uh, ship of the class and brought him over. The captain, uh, Captain Smith, for example, came over from Olympic. And so a lot of the crew had come over. So the idea being, this is going to be a smooth transition. We're going we're to have everything working just fine. And we're going to cater to these groups. But ironically, Titanic wasn't at full capacity when she sailed. She was actually below full capacity. She did not have all her top suites booked out. Uh, and that is because, again, this is a period of time. It's, it's 1912. The economy is going through a little bit of a flux right now because you had an economic recession happen and you're hitting a market where you're starting to inundate them with a lot of ships. And so Lusitania, Mauritania is going, the German vessels are going. And so Titanic hits this little period. And it's one of the reasons why Bruce Ismay was really focused on making this voyage memorable. And he succeeded beyond his imagination. Wow. Can you help us understand the difference experiences that a first class passenger would have had from a second and a third class uh, passenger on the ship? So you start at the bottom and work your way up. If you think about third class, a lot of these people are experiencing for the first time ever electricity. I, I mean, we take it for granted right now, but a lot of people were living in rural areas, uh, didn't have electricity, didn't have any of the modern conveniences. So electricity would have been a shock for them. Indoor plumbing would have been a shock for them. And so, you know, there, there was actually education they had to do on this, on what to do and, and how to handle this and how to work the system and and, and not to cause problems on board. Uh, you had to stop people from urinating everywhere. You had to teach them where the bathrooms were and and oh. and, and and do this. And the food was another thing is, is the food was always, you know, you didn't have to cook. Food is provided for you. So you went into these kind of large cafeteria areas, you would get food. And it, it was for the third class coming across an experience like nothing they had ever seen before. And, you know, you have this idea that, that you know, it's it's because we get it from the movie Titanic is that, oh, the third class, they're the happy class. They would be happy. They'd be ecstatic at this. They're, they, they have heating, <laughs> they have air conditioning, they have beds, they have lighting, they have food. This is really all good. This is great. This is a fantastic voyage that they're going on. They would be notoriously seasick. That's the other thing is, is these ships tend to roll quite a bit. And they're down in the lowest part of the ship with the least amount of ventilation. Second class, that's, you know, that's your middle class. These are the people who are going on trips and vacations and life for them is pretty good. It's not too bad. They would probably be in rooms without bathrooms. It'd be communal bathrooms that they would use. 
uh, but definitely a huge step above. You're not in the communal areas like you are in third class. This is the way most people are traveling back and forth on business and on vacations. The the first class was was ironic for cruise ships because it was a lose-lose proposition. They took up so much space that you didn't generate a lot of revenue for it. But the idea was you wanted to have that people on your roster. You wanted to have that people like these are the people who are sailing with us, the Astors. You know, we want that kind of who's who notoriety for us because that's going to bring more and more people on board. And a lot of the second class, for example, would want to sail on a vessel where those first class people are sailing on because like I was on the same vessel with these people. And so you you get that kind of grouping on board. And, and so the first class required you know a lot of a lot of space there was a lot of luxury they had their own you know the two big suites that you see so when you look at the movie titanic and you see the suite there that was one of two suites one was on each side of the vessel and those were very unique and matter of fact one of them was empty on this voyage and so you you really lose out on that but again it, it, it's different levels. And in many ways, we still see that in cruising today. You know, where do you book your room? Well, I've got an inside cabin. Well, that's, you know, that's steerage. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I've got the balcony. Well, that's nice. That's that's second class or I've got the upper deck villa, you know, with all the, you know, with all the, the, the perks of being in there. Well, you're a first class now. We think we get rid of them, but we don't. We still have them in many ways. You know, it's the more you pay, the better, better, the, the better the voyage is for you. Wow. Now let's talk about lifeboats. I mean, the the huge loss of life was was so preventable. It, it seems based on 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 the numbers for the for the lifeboats. How many lifeboats were on the Titanic? How many could it actually hold? And why was the decision made to take them off of the boat before it set sail? Well, the vessel was operated under British flag. So it was a blue, even though the ship was owned by a company, White Star was owned in turns by a company called International Mercantile Marine, which was actually owned by uh, 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 Rockefeller. And so it was it was a part of the uh, a large company, but it was registered in the British uh, registry. And so it had to conform to what's known as the British uh Ministry of Trade or the Board of Trade. And so Board of Trade really set up the rules and regulations for these vessels. And the problem you had is these vessels were getting bigger and bigger. They were getting larger and larger. There was a huge race to put more and more people on the vessels. Again, largely it was down in this area of of the uh, birthing area where you had the third class. And understand the lifeboats really weren't intended at any point for everybody to get into them. That wasn't the idea. The idea was the ship would get into distress. You would put the people in the lifeboats and ferry them over to another vessel that's on this busy North Atlantic route. I mean, it's like the I-95, I-5 highway at this time. And there's always vessels going back and forth, back and forth. And the idea was you're going to put people in these boats and they're going to transfer across. And also there was this idea that this ship is it's not that it was unsinkable. And that's a big misnomer. There's this concept that the, the ship was labeled as being unsinkable and it wasn't. But it had such redundancies in them, including watertight compartments, that the idea was even if she gets into a position where she's going to sink, it'll take time. And in that time, other vessels would show up. So you had about 20 lifeboats on board. Some of them were, were collapsible lifeboats. Some of them were in the davits. 
and you'd be able to get them on. And I, I should note that even modern cruise ships today, so the, one of the biggest vessels in the world is getting ready to set sail, Oasis of the Sea, this massive uh, vessel uh, getting ready to go out. And it should note that there's, there's enough lifeboats on board that vessel for the passengers, but not for the crew. Uh, that's made up with life rafts. And so you have this kind of combination even today where we see this happening. But again, those lifeboats were intended just to get the people ferried to another vessel. But what happens with Titanic, as we know, is it runs into this ice field and other ships stop sailing around it. And there wasn't a good enough method to signal these other vessels. It's one of the reasons why after Titanic sinks, you convene this, this uh, convention in London in 1914 called the Safety of Life at Sea, what is called SOLAS. And today, ships operate under that same convention. It's been updated m multiple times, but it puts into play all the regulations you need today. So, for example, you need enough lifeboats and life rafts for everybody on board. That's, that's, that's a given. But you also need, for example, the ability to signal people that there is distress. So one of the famous images that comes from this vessel is it sent SOS. It sent out that that did did da message to everybody. The problem was ships at this time had radios on board, but the radios were leased by a company called the Marconi Company. And Marconi operators, the people who man those, those stations were expensive. And so a lot of ships would just have one Marconi operator on board. And that Marconi operator would operate the system during the day. At night, he went to bed. And so the system got turned off. So oh. the ship that was closest to Titanic, this is the vessel called the California, its operator went to sleep and did never <gasps> receive the SOS from it. The ship, the Carpathia, just happened to pick it up. The uh, radio operator happened to just turn it on last minute before he went to bed for the evening, heard the call, the Carpathia boat was four hours away. Uh, California was less than an hour away. Oh. And so one of the things that comes out of Solus is this idea is you need 24-hour manning of the radio beacons. Uh, the California, for example, saw distress rockets. They were shooting flares up in the air. But no one had set up what color distress flares should be. You know, People were thinking, well, they're shooting flares because they're looking for ice. And so nobody came to the, to the system. And so... There were mechanisms in place to save everybody on the Titanic. It's just the rules weren't in place to ensure that other vessels would have known about it. Had you had this in place, the California was less than an hour away. They arrived. They rescued probably nearly everyone. And we don't talk too much about this story. Wow. Another thing we were pretty upset about. I'm hoping you can help us with this. Is it Jack and Rose? Was... It's because Rose didn't put Jack on the float. That's what we're going to talk about next because she she kills, I mean... she kills Jack. I mean, it's pretty clear. Don't worry. Don't worry. We're getting to that. <laughs> um, we were upset when we learned that the lookouts didn't have binoculars on the ship. And wh what was the protocol at the time for lookouts? And why didn't those on the Titanic have binoculars? So... I have sailed the Atlantic. I was a merchant mariner for many years and I sailed the Atlantic. And one of the passages I had across the Atlantic was one of the most unusual ones was the water was dead flat. I mean, it was spooky. And there's, there's, there's this scene, if you watch the movie Titanic, it's dead flat. Yes. The captain says it's like a mill pond and it's, it's disturbing. It really is for someone who sails the ocean. When, when water's like that, it's really weird because it's just, it, it, it kind of, it's disconcerting. It, it's a weird position to be in. So yeah, they left. And again, this is the first cruise. So there's a lot of things that kind of got missed. And one of the things was 
binoculars for the lookouts. I will make the argument that's not the problem. Whether he had binoculars or not did not matter. So they're sailing on a, uh, a pretty flat night. The stars are out. If you've ever been on a ship at night, it's amazing because you'll see stars you've never seen before, all the way down to the horizon, all the way down to the horizon. And this berg that they hit, there's there's discussion about it from eyewitnesses that it was referred to as a blueberg. This is an iceberg that had just recently rolled. So one of the things that happens, depending on an iceberg, most icebergs is below the water. But sometimes because of air temperature, in, in this case, the water temperature was below freezing because of salt water, it was pretty cold. You get the Labrador current, which comes down from Canada, it pushes these big icebergs down. And sometimes the upper ice will melt faster than the lower ice and it'll create a position where the iceberg will actually flip and they'll roll. And it's believed that this berg was one of them, really hard to see. It's not like the big white thing you expect to see. Sometimes these mm. things are blue or, or off shade. If you're steaming, and they were steaming at about 21 knots, they were not at full speed. Uh, they were not racing to break any record because Titanic was never going to break a record. It wasn't fast yeah. enough to do that. But what you would have seen is actually a black hole on the surface of the water where there's no stars. And usually on a, on, on a normal Atlantic, you would see the waves crashing across it. it. It would be moving. This thing was not moving. It was just kind of a little black blotch on the surface hmm. and whether you had binoculars or not it would have been really hard to discern because it, it just would have blocked out the the stars and it would have gotten larger and larger as you get closer to it and so whether or not they had binoculars really wasn't the big issue uh the problem was at that speed and with such a night the way it was they were not able to discern the berg from the background and this is where the what I would argue is the fundamental problem happens is mm -hmm. that up on the bridge, the, the officer of the watch decides he thinks he can turn around the berg versus head straight into the berg, where I would argue that if you head straight into that iceberg and hit it head on, you don't sink. Uh, but when you try to go around it, that's where you cause the problems. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Tell me more. Why, why is it where, when you're... Is it because it... <laughs> this is such a basic assumption but is it it just scrapes the side of the boat and takes out more versus just a head first impact so the way the way the vessel is is designed william murdoch the first officer was up on the bridge now murdoch is, is an experienced officer he'd come over uh-huh. from olympic with captain smith and one of the things that you do and you have on ships is, is you always know when you turn the wheel of the ship left or right either way you have something called advance. You know how far that ship is going to advance before it's 90 degrees turned from where it's going to be. So the minute you turn the wheel of a ship, it doesn't immediately turn. It takes time. It, it, it's a slow moving process. And not only that, ships turn kind of differently than a car. You turn the wheel of your car, mm. the front of the car turns. When you turn the wheel of a ship, you kick the stern out. And so what happens is the bow, the front of the vessel will start to turn the way you want it to, but the back end kicks out. It almost slides. And it's it's to get that analogy, you have to drive your car backwards. And if you drive your car backwards and turn the wheel, that's kind of the motion you get. And so when he sees the iceberg, he orders, he doesn't order hard left, he orders hard starboard, because that's the weird helm controls they have at the time. They would order like how you would push the rudder over. And so he he orders to, to go to the left. And when he does that, he also does another thing is that he backs one of the engines. He's got three propellers and he orders one of the engines back, the other one ahead full. And what he's trying to do is twist the vessel. He's trying to twist the vessel Mm. so he can turn it really fast. That does two things. Number one, once you order the propeller about going backwards, you create turbulence, this kind of bubble motion. So, you know, think about bubbles from a water jet or something like that. And what that does is those are little air bubbles and little air bubbles are terrible for a rudder. You can't turn. You want to be turning through nice, clear water, not through bubbles. And when you turn that hard into that disturbance, you don't get as much grip. You kind of slide. It's almost like uh, it's almost like being on, 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 on wet sand or something like that. It's not that you don't grip it. And what happened with Titanic is it kind of slid into the side of the of the iceberg. And you get that famous image from different movies of, of you know, a piece of the iceberg punching through. More than likely, they just smashed up against the side and the plates buckled. And what they did is you get the great scene in, in the Titanic movie where the designer of the vessel says, we flooded the first five compartments. And he says, what's going to happen is the water is going to go over the top of the bulkheads and we're going to go down bow first and we're going to sink. If Murdoch had thought about this and he had a better idea, I think what Murdoch didn't realize is he was as close to the berg as he, as he was. He thought he was further away from the berg. Uh. And what he thought is I could turn around this and I can just get around the berg. What he didn't realize is he was much closer. And if he realized he was much closer, you don't turn. Instead, you go full on into the berg. And what you would do is smash the bow. You would smash the first maybe one, two, three compartments tops. Everyone's going to get hurt. I mean, because you go from 25 miles an hour to zero in like no time. Uh, so if anybody's up standing around, they're going to get hurled. But it's late at night. Most people were in bed at this point. And what would have happened is you would have flooded the first few compartments. 
maybe into four compartments. But even then, the ship doesn't go down and more than enough time for rescue to get to them. But that's that's a Monday night quarterback. And it's very hard to make that call. Murdoch is very experienced. He knows this ship because he'd been on Olympic and the vessels handle very similarly. And so he thought, I can get around this berg. And that's unfortunately the error. And what he did is the one thing you couldn't do to that vessel is flood that many compartments because the mm. ship did not have watertight bulkheads that went all the way up the vessel. They stopped at a certain point. And as the bow begins to sink, as you see in the movie, water laps over. And I will say this about the builder of the vessel. What's amazing about this vessel sinking is that it doesn't roll. It stays on an even keel as long as it does. It's really a testament to the construction of that vessel. Now, once the iceberg, they 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 strike the iceberg. Um, they realize, what are they thinking? I mean, they they must have at, at least known that the ship was going to sink. And what kind of safety protocols? are then uh, started? Do, do they start loading up the lifeboats right away or was that part of the problem? So ships have hit, believe it or not, icebergs before. This is not a, a, an unusual occurrence. We tend to think Titanic's the only vessel that ever hit an iceberg. And not actually, we've had series of cases where vessels had. Smith does exactly what he's supposed to do. He stops the vessel. He orders an assessment of the damage. How bad are we hurt? And he immediately calls out for distress. He immediately calls for assistance. And so he begins to ascertain what is going on with the vessel. You know, are, are we flooding? Are we sinking? What's the assessment? And, and again, he has the builder on board. I mean, they're riding its builder's trials. They actually have uh, construction personnel from Belfast uh, on board, from Harlan Wolf on board. And they go down and assess, and they realize very quickly that she's going to sink. There's no way we can keep her afloat. We can delay it with pumps. There's a lot we can do, but we're not going to be able to stop it. And so he orders the lifeboats swung out, which is the first process, is you order the lifeboats swung out. And what usually happens is you lower them down to what's called the embarkation deck and you start loading people into them. And the problem again here is you don't have enough seats for everybody on board. And he's sending out an SOS and he's not getting an answer. The only answer he's getting is from Carpathia, which is four hours away. And he's being told this vessel's going down in two. So what do we do? And and I, I would argue that E.J. Smith, who's the captain of this vessel, is, is without a doubt one of the most experienced captains in White Star lines. I mean, there's no doubt about his qualifications. But this is a shock. I mean, this is the shock moment where you have to overcome this disaster. How do you overcome this? And I think he's in a state of, of really deniability here. He doesn't quite understand how bad this is. And initially what he wanted to do was lower the boats with just the crews on board to man the boats and get the boats away. Because one of the things he's worried about is the ship maybe roll. It may roll on him. And if it rolls, if it starts to list, then the boats are stuck on board on one side. So you want to get all the boats off. People do not handle anything well, as you know, in case of a disaster. As the yes. vessel begins to you know heal and list, people start scrambling to the boats and there's panic on the boat decks. There, there's just panic on them. And you got to be very careful about loading boats because if you put too many people in one way, you're going to flip the boat, you're going to dump them. And this happens with Titanic. You have boats that will flip and lose people. 
And so you're trying to keep order at the same time to do an orderly progression. So some of the boats get away without full full uh, mm. compliments on board. He tries, but there's no mean the communication. The communication is very rudimentary. It's really hard to call back the vessels because normally you would, you would use a loudspeaker or a speaker horn. But at this time, the vessel is flooding. And every time the compartments begin to flood below deck, the boilers get hit with water. And so steam is venting. And so you've got this almost like a jet engine sound coming up each of the stacks as water is hitting the boilers. And that superheated steam is coming up. You can't hear anything. And that's the boat deck too. So, you, you know, it's, it's loud, it's noisy, and it's just confusion. And this is at a time before there were boat drills. You know, you get on board a cruise ship now, you're going to go through your boat drill within 24 hours. That wasn't required. Most people didn't know what to do. And it just becomes pandemonium. And then you have agents of the ship down below keeping the third class pa uh, passengers out of the second class. They can't get to the boat deck because those areas are locked off and sealed. And so you, you just have this 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 problem and, and communication is very difficult on the ship. And what you see happen is boats get launched, not fully loaded, and the ship begins taking its plunge down. And it's very difficult to get back because the boats don't want to come back for fear they're going to be sucked into the hull as the vessel begins to sink. Oh, okay. No, can, can you actually walk us through the the sinking of 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 the ship? Where was, how does it actually go down? How, essentially, how accurate is James Cameron <laughs> um, in the movie? So the, the image you see with James Cameron, I would say is is nearly spot on. The, 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 thing, I, the, the, the thing I have an issue with, and even Cameron came back and admitted it, is that the stern never raised as high as he does in the movie. That's pure dramatic effect. You don't quite get that stern lifting up as high. But again, mm. the ship's on a very even keel. It's really amazing because if you think about it, the ship got hit on the starboard side, it doesn't roll to the starboard side. It stays very flat, which is, again, a testament to the construction of this vessel. And so the vessel does begin this, this kind of list down by the bow. It starts going down head first. And as it starts going down head first, you start getting that image. And, and when you're on a ship, you know, the minute you see anything unusual, you feel it. You know, you start to have these motions and feelings. What's interesting, too, is that throughout this period of time, the power is on. They, the, the engineers, not one engineer escapes from this vessel. All the engineers die on this ship because they remain in the boiler rooms and in the engine room providing power to the Marconi and for lights so that they're not doing this in darkness because the biggest fear mm. is lights go out and, and it's it's even more panic than that. The ship would have begun to head down bow first. And very much like you see in the movies, the decks would start to flood, the lower decks first. And, and again, Titanic was unique because it had these large bulkheads. The ship was kind of sliced like a loaf of bread into these compartments. And at a certain height, those bulkheads stopped and water would lap over them. And so if you're at the very lower deck of Titanic, you couldn't walk through the whole ship. You had to go up. You had to go up and over, up and over. But interestingly enough, Titanic actually had watertight doors below deck, so you could do that. But one of the first things that happens when the Titanic hits the berg is they shut those doors. They had an electric switch on the bridge. Throw the switch, and those doors come down. And you see that in the movie oh. really well depicted. Those steel doors yeah. come down. They segregate the vessel out. And so that prolongs the life of the ship for a long period of time and the vessel would have started going down and so they were really concerned to get the forward lifeboats off as quick as they could 
and get them off. The ship would have begun to rise out of the water a bit, but the, a ship is designed to be supported entirely in the water. And if you go back to when we talked about Ever Given two years ago, the concern with Ever Given was she was stuck on her bow and stern and the middle was sagging. There's a big fear she was going to break. In the case of Titanic, she starts to sink by the bow and the stern starts lifting up and the vessel will start suffering what's called these bending motions. The steel isn't designed to flex and bend like this. And what would begin to happen is cracking. You would start seeing cracking on the hull. And the reports come in that you start seeing the guide wires for the smokestacks begin to separate. Uh, they start coming down. And then eventually the, the vessel's hull will crack uh, just around the fourth stack. And you'll have it nowhere near as high as you do in the, in, in the movie, but it will crack. And eventually it comes down. It's actually attached by the bottom. The bottom never breaks. So the ship's keel actually remains intact. And eventually that's what will pull down the whole vessel. It would have been, I, I can't tell you how terrifying it would have been because it, it's imagining your home, someplace that you live and, and could not imagine something happening. And all of a sudden it starts to fill with water or it starts to tilt. And, you know, this is the fear earthquakes have for people. It, it's the abnormality of what you can't perceive anything happening to, it is happening to. And this entire vessel will be gone in less than two hours. Now, if, if you're one of the unfortunate people who's not able to get on a lifeboat, but you're still alive um, and you do fall into the water, this is where, where Jack and Rose <laughs> come into play. <laughs> How long do you have, um, in, in, you know, before you die, essentially? And uh, what, what did those people go through? How could Rose have saved Jack? It, well, you're, you're dealing with hyperthermia. And, and remember here, you have hyperthermia in, in multiple levels. It is cold out there. You're in, it's April in the North Atlantic. And, you know, you're at the latitude of Newfoundland, basically. You know, you're 400 miles south of Newfoundland is where you're at. The water is is just, you remember, salt water can get lower in temperature than normal water can before it freezes. So, so you're, you're dealing with water right around freezing at this point. Air is right around freezing. So, I mean, you're already suffering hyperthermia just being out in the air. Once you hit the water, that's it. You, you have a very short period of time when those people hit the water. And again, another qualm I have with the Titanic movie, there's scenes of Jack and Rose running through the ship in water. that They would have had hyperthermia at that point. They, they would have been freezing uh. at that point. Uh, but that water is freezing cold. And when you hit water in that temperature, your lifespan is minutes, uh, it is just minutes. The shock of it would have taken everything out of you. People talk about diving into cold, freezing water, and it is it is just a pure shock. Your body reacts in a very set way. It you know your your blood vessels constrict at the very ends of your body, your hands, your feet, your legs, arms, and it tries to keep your core warm. It, it, so what it's doing is constricting your blood vessels, and it's trying to keep that water in the center. I mean the the, the blood in the center part of you warm, but your body temperature starts to fall. I mean just begin to fall, and when you start getting you know below ninety degrees body core temperature, you're you're you're, you're heading down. You lose motion in your limbs because there's no blood there, so you can't move your muscles and any basic thing you have. And you got to remember, even the life jackets they have, these KPOC life jackets are not enough to keep you afloat. You have to kick. Uh, they're not designed to kind of keep you up out of the water. They're designed to facilitate you floating, but not to independently keep you floating. 
They're also not designed so that when you become immobile to keep your head out of the water. Modern life jackets on ships, when you put them on, they roll you onto your back so your head's up out of the water. These aren't. And in many cases, these life jackets aren't properly sized, so people will slip through them and fall out of them. Uh, there's not enough of them. You have people jumping off the vessel, people being washed off the vessel. And within minutes, it, it doesn't take long for you to lose your mo motor functions, lose your upper functions, can't talk, can't do anything. And then you slip off. And it, I would argue it's one of the worst ways to die. Next to being on fire and, and burning, I think hyperthermia is one of the worst because it, it, you almost can't control what's happening to you, yet you're still conscious and, and it's, it's, it's really terrible. Oh, now... How were the survivors eventually rescued? And ultimately, what was the loss of life like? So obviously, you know, people in the in the boats are the ones who are going to survive. And, and there's that very famous image of them sending a lifeboat back in to find Rose, which actually did happen. They moved passengers into other lifeboats and the ship's fourth, fourth officer, I think it was, took a lifeboat in. But by the time he did it, very few people were still alive. Uh, largely it was those who had gotten on some sort of debris. There's a very famous story of, and actually you see it in Titanic for just a second when they're on the stern, there's a, there's a cook there with them. Uh, one of, one of, one of the cooks on board and there's a very famous story. It's actually featured in the 1950s version of the movie. The cook gets hammered drunk because this is happening and somehow he survives, uh, which is not the way to save alive in water, by the way, because, because, because alcohol thins your blood. It doesn't, but he'd actually managed to find some chairs to get up on top of. And so he gets saved. Uh, but there are people who are saved. And when the California arrives, uh, Captain Stanley Lord, who's one of the heroes of this story, he has the Carpathia rigged. He's got the boats out. He's got he's got uh, 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 Carpathia is a much smaller vessel. It's a it's a cargo slash passenger vessel. He orders the passengers to stay below. He gets his crew out. They drop their boats and they go out like crazy and they scoop everybody in. And they're able to bring most of the survivors on board Carpathia. Other vessels will come in behind them. But Carpathia is the one that saves them. The exact number, she sailed with about 22, uh, 2,224 passengers and crewed on board, and more than 1,500 died. We don't actually have a firm count because some bodies or the questions about it. But Carpathia was the one, and, and, and Stanley Lord does a, a fantastic job, and it's one of the reasons his testimony at both the U.S. Senate investigation and the British Board of Trade was one of the big reasons why they start enacting these changes for it, because he made the comment that there were ships closer, but he was the only one who, and the fact that he heard it was a complete uh, luck of the draw that he was able to get there. And were there any other uh, changes uh, made after this disaster in terms of maritime safety? So if you look at Titanic's sister ship, Olympic, one of the things, if you look at images of, of uh, Titanic and Olympic, and I got to be careful, there's, there's a lot of people who have this conspiracy theory that it wasn't Titanic that sank, it was Olympic that sank. Uh, there were not many photos taken of Titanic uh, because it was sunk so early in, in its career. Lots of times you'll see images that say it's Titanic, but it's actually Olympic. And that has created this conspiracy theory that the ships got swapped out for insurance purposes. It's, it's a very convoluted story. Mm. But, but if you look at later images of Olympic and then Britannic later on, 
you'll see, for example, they have many more lifeboats on board nested together. Uh, the watertight bulkheads go much higher in the vessel so that now the lapping of that water wouldn't happen. They're not unsinkable as Britannic finds out because Britannic sister ship to Titanic sinks in World War One. It hits a mine in the Aegean Sea in 1915 and actually, it can actually be 1916 and actually sinks. Uh, and there, there was actually the story of of a uh, nurse who was on board Britannic who actually happened at the distinct unfortunate luck to have been on Lusitania, Titanic, and Britannic. The three wow. big, yeah, just you would not go on another vessel with this woman. If, if she comes <laughs> on board your ship, get off because it's it's not going to be good. But they do, they, they they take those lessons. They put in the 24-hour radio. And matter of fact, there's a, a process that's done so that when you signal SOS on a certain channel, it's supposed to key up and sound an alarm on vessels. And uh, the International Ice Patrol was set up so that icebergs, when they start cutting across the main shipping lanes, would be identified by the new U.S. Coast Guard and other groups that would come in. And so you would have good ice reporting coming in. You'd be able to track where these bergs are and when there are high flows and how to adjust your voyages. And there was more processes. And to this day, we live with the SOLAS uh, convention. It's it's one of the things. So that fast forward uh, nearly 100 years when Costa Concordia sinks off the coast of Italy, a lot of the reason there's only 32 die, die on that is because of Titanic. Wow. Now, Sal, we have to ask you this question finally. We ask all of our guest experts this question. If you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept, that you think is to blame for the sinking of the Titanic, who or what would that be? All right. So I'm, I'm going to come back. I'm going to be mean about this because I talked about him just a minute ago. Is I got to go back to William Murdoch, the first officer. Yeah. Who had that opportunity to basically make that split second decision. And it's, I'm, I'm really hard on him. I don't mean to be because 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 I, I would probably do the same exact thing. But mm. if anybody had it in their power to prevent this to happen, it would have been that watch crew on the bridge of Titanic when the tight when the iceberg appeared. But again, it is such a split second decision that you have to make. Uh, because right now we'd be having this conversation is like, why'd Murdoch hit the iceberg? You know, all he had to do is turn left and he would have missed the thing, you know, and, and, you know, hundreds may have not been hurt. Uh, but it, it is so tough. I mean, the vessel was built to a level that was, was standard at the time. So you can't really go back on the builder. Uh, a lot of people want to blame Bruce Ismay, the owner of White Star for pushing this, but I, I mean, Canard's pushing their ships. Everybody's pushing their ships. That is not unusual at the time. Uh, Captain Smith makes the decision to go ahead and not really, you know, alter his course and continue sailing into the area. But, you know, other ships were sailing the area, too. I mean, Carpathia just sailed through that area. And so other ships were, were in and out of that area. But I, I think Murdoch up on the bridge uh, is the one. And, and and matter of fact, what you see in, in the movie uh, Titanic is he's the one who shoots and kills himself, you know, for for that. It, it weighs on his heart uh, about that. But in the testimony in the U.S. Senate and the Board of Trade, the second officer, uh, Lightoller, basically said there was nothing they could do. There, there, there was there by the time they saw that that Berg and because of the conditions, there was very little that could be done either way that would have prevented it. And there's no clear indication that they would have been able to hit the iceberg head on either. They may have still wound up 
glancing blow off of it. So it, it, it's a tough call. It's a really tough call. I hate, I hate to pick on poor William Murdoch after all these years. I know. Well, Sal, it's always so wonderful to talk to you. And thank you for, uh, you know, walking us through this, you know, epic alarmist subject, you know? It, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's maritime history 101. Everyone has to talk about the Titanic. I even forgot my Titanic uh, Lego for you here today. So, <laughs> so I had it in the background, but it, it, it's, I think the reason we keep going back to Titanic beyond the movie is, is it's such uh, an epic story because it, it covers all these different groups of people. Uh, it's something that it really shakes our foundation of the technology we rely on. Here's something that's state of the art. It, it's it's the most modern, you know, ship of its day, and it gets you know killed by frozen water, and you know that that's the end 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 result, and and so many people wind up dying from it. Yes, as you said, everyone must talk about the Titanic. We must never stop talking <laughs> about the Titanic. Thank you, Sal. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. It's great to be back with you again. <laughs> If you'd like to hear our post-interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash the alarmist. Tune in next week. We'll be revisiting the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire and inviting a guest expert to finally help us get to the bottom of who's to blame. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.